You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. In 2009, world-famous magician and devout atheist, Penn Gillette, shared a story about an encounter that he had with a Christian after one of his shows. Um, He was playing Vegas, him and Penn and Teller, right? They were playing Vegas at the time. And he said that at the conclusion of a show, a Christian came up to him and gave him a Bible. And in the Bible had written a note that said, if you ever want to talk about following after Jesus and gave him five different phone numbers that he could call to get in touch with him if he ever wanted to talk about following after Jesus. And so um, Gillette, who is still an atheist, he commented on this man's generous and kind spirit. And even more than that, he said that he respected this man um, because he had come and shared with him. He says, I'm just thankful that he cared enough for me, that he cared enough about me, that he would share this truth. Here's a quote from Penn Gillette reflecting on the incident. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them because it could make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. He's right. The most important thing that we could tell someone about is the love of God, the salvation offered in Christ. So he's right to ask that question. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? If you were were here with us um, last week and and the week before, we've been studying through Colossians. And as we've walked through Colossians, what we found is it's telling us about who Jesus is, right? Last week, we found out that it says Jesus is the creator and the sustainer and the savior of the world and that he saves anyone who would trust in him. I think about it. He's offering salvation to anyone who would trust in that, that those who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, Colossians says that Jesus reconciles them in his body by his death, right? That he presents them holy and blameless and above reproach before God. The week before that, we saw that the work of God is to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus, where we would find the forgiveness of sin. If those things are true, if it's true that all who trust in Christ forgiveness in Christ, then how could we not share that with others? How much do we hate them that we would withhold that good news from them? So we are gonna continue this morning in our series in Colossians. Um, We find Paul telling us, that in light of this incredible good news of the gospel, that what he's doing is he is willingly suffering and prayerfully proclaiming to everyone the mystery of God in Christ. Because Paul realized that those things are true. And the only right response is to tell literally everyone that he meets. So like I said, we're 
in a series through the book of, of Colossians, a letter written by Paul to a church that he has never visited, to people that he has never met. And the thing that he wants them to know more than anything else is that Jesus is above all. Jesus above all. And because Paul believes that Jesus really is above all, he is now willingly suffering, prayerfully proclaiming to everyone the mystery of God in Christ. We're gonna read from Colossians chapter one and a little bit into two this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and and turn there. We'll have the text up here on the screen as well. Um, If you picked up a Bible on your way in, it's on page 572. And I realize that we've got some things going on here. My mic sounds weird. Sometimes the screen goes blank. We're excited about that because here's what that means. When Satan's trying to do something, that means God's at work. So we're gonna be okay with that. So we're going to have it up here on the screen, but if you want a Bible, it's on page 572, and you can follow along there. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul says that he is willingly suffering and he is prayerfully proclaiming to everyone the glorious mystery of God in Christ, the mystery of God. I love that. I love a good, I love a good mystery. Um, in some ways though, this is um, more like, it's more like hidden treasure, than, than a mystery, right? Mysteries have a bit of an ominous feel to them, right? But this mystery is, is pointing out to a sort of glorious secret that we would find. The end result isn't that we're gonna arrest a felon, right? The end result is that we're gonna celebrate salvation, right? So it's more in line with a, with a treasure hunt. But he does use in this passage the word mystery three times, right? In verse 26, he calls it the mystery that's been hidden for ages, but now is revealed. In verse 27, he says the riches of the glory of this mystery. And then in chapter two, he tells them that they're coming to understand God's mystery, 
I just want to read for us that section in chapter two, one to three again. He says this, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts might be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All right, so, so here in this verse, we're told the answer to the mystery. The answer is Christ. The answer is Jesus in whom there are just treasures of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. But it's actually not just Christ. It's not just Jesus. Verse 27 of of chapter 1 tells us that the riches of the glory of this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The answer to the mystery is Christ, specifically Christ dwelling in us. But perhaps we need to back up and consider what was the mystery in the first place. We've played a little Jeopardy here. I've given you the answer. What's the question? What was the mystery in the first place? Mystery that Paul is referring to is how would God go about saving the world? Saving all sorts of peoples, all these different nations. How would God go about saving all of them? And maybe even more than that, how would God go about spreading his glory over the whole of the earth? How would God do that? And so let's just understand a little bit of of Old Testament context, a little bit of the context that Paul is writing into. So if we think about the Jewish world of the Old Testament, the way they understood gods then, and even really when Paul's writing Colossians, is this sort of individual nations had their own gods. So they have one God or maybe multiple gods, but they worshiped only their gods, And they believed that their gods were the ones that that provided for them and protected them and would go out and fight for them and defeat their enemies. All through the Old Testament, we actually see God, like the true God, Yahweh, demonstrating that he is more powerful than all the other gods. That's what he's doing, right? So when he delivers the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he says that he's executing judgment, on the gods of Egypt. We read that story, it looks like he's executing judgment on the Egyptians, but God says, no, I'm executing judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. In, in, in 1 Samuel 5, there's this story where the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant, that's God's throne. And they take it back to their own land and they place it in the temple of their God, Dagon. And they wake up the next morning and Dagon has fallen flat in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they set him back up and he falls flat and his head busts off because God is declaring judgment on other gods. This is the way they understood all of these gods. Work. So gods are supposed to defend their own nation and defeat all the other nations, defeat all the other peoples, but not the God of Israel. Yahweh says he's not just going to be for Israel. He's going to be for all the nations, all the peoples. When he's making his covenant with with Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, he says, in your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. We, We can even back up in the story all the way to Genesis chapter 
12, it's even more precise in, in Genesis chapter 12, because he says, Abraham, all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed by you. The mystery is how is God going to do that? How is he gonna bless all of the nations, all of the families, all of the peoples through Abraham's offspring? And the answer is Christ in Jesus, who is Jewish, who is an offspring of Abraham. All of the nations of the earth are blessed because salvation now has come to everyone who believes, not just to the Jews. God's doing a mysterious thing in this. We can even go further. If you think back to the Old Testament, there's this moment in the Old Testament where all the people are united and they decide to build a tower up to heaven. And they build this tower up and God's like, oh, this is gonna be a problem. So God comes down. I love this. They build a tower way up. They think it's the biggest thing they've ever seen. And God's like, what are y'all doing down there? God comes down and God changes their language and spreads them out, right? And so we now see all of this division that happens. And then here's what happens in Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, the spirit of God falls on the people. You have all of these nations, all of these languages, all gathered together in Jerusalem. And it says this, when they began to preach because the spirit of God, them, everybody heard it in their own language. So this, all of this division now brought together in Christ. And they all heard and 3000 people believed. But it's not just a mystery. How is God going to save all of these people? But how is he going to get his glory all over the earth? Right in the Old Testament, the glory of God dwelled in the tabernacle, out in the, out in the wilderness, and it kind of went with them camp to camp. Eventually, they get to Jerusalem and they build a temple, this permanent structure where God's glory dwells. That's where he's at. Right? So if you want to see the glory of God, you've got to go to the temple. In fact, there are three times in the Old Testament where we're told that God's glory is so thick in a place that people can't even walk in the door. It's when they consecrate the tabernacle, when they consecrate the temple, and then when they re-consecrate the temple. And God's glory is so thick that the priest can't even do their work. That's where God's glory dwelled. How's he going to spread it all over the earth? And he has to, that's his promise. He promised it. He prophesied it in Habakkuk 2.14. Habakkuk 2.14 says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's Yahweh, the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. How is it going to happen if God dwells in a stationary temple? Even if he dwells in sort of a, a mobile tabernacle, how is it going to happen? There's a mystery here. Well, here's how it happens. All sorts of people, right after Jesus, all sorts of people begin to be saved. They come together the day of Pentecost, all sorts of people get saved. Paul goes out on a missionary journey, all sorts of people get saved. And when people get saved, here's what happens. They are filled with the presence of God. So where God used to dwell in a tabernacle or in a temple, here's what we're told now in 1 Corinthians. We're told that we each of you individually and us corporately, we are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells within us. So how's God's glory going to spread all over the world? It's because we, his followers, full of his spirit spread all over the world. 
So God's glory is here in this place right now, like the waters cover the sea. So the mystery, the answer to the mystery isn't just Christ, but it's Christ in you, right? Because Christ, the mystery is not just that there's salvation in Christ, but that if you're saved, Christ dwells in you. We don't have to go to a temple in Jerusalem. We don't have to go find the tabernacle in the wilderness. We don't have to go find Jesus to see the glory of God. The glory of God dwells in his people. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think about that for a minute. If you've trusted in Christ, if you have repented and believed in Jesus, Christ has taken up residence inside of you. Jesus, the creator, sustainer, and savior of the world, the only son of God, the resurrected king over all. He is present and living within you. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when, they, when King Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, he says this, he says, behold, heaven and, and the highest heavens cannot contain you, God, how much less this house that I built. And we might say the same thing, how much even less, right, that you would take up residence within me. Not only is is God with us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. He's not just with us though, he's in us. Our confidence, he says, our hope rests in the fact that Christ dwells in you. Because he dwells in us, we can be sure that one day we will dwell in him. In fact, that's what Ephesians chapter two, verse six, it says that's already happened. Here's what it says of of those who've trusted in Christ, Ephesians 2, 6. It says that you are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ right now. You're there. He's in you. You're in him. The mystery of God is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that great mystery then becomes the great message that we have to declare. And Paul says that he tells it to everybody. Right, so look again at verse 28. He says, him, that is Jesus, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If it is true, if in Christ God really did make a way so that all sorts of peoples could come to salvation, right, if it's true that there are glorious riches to be found in relationship with Christ, if it is really true that the creator of the world would just, not just save you, but that he would dwell within you, if all of that is true, then we, like Paul, must tell everyone, right? As, as Penn Gillette says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life exists and then not to tell them that? Here's what I want you to know. Whoever you are, wherever you've come from, whatever you've gone through in your life, whatever pain you've caused, whatever pain you've experienced, Jesus says, you can come to me. And not only will I welcome you, but I will live in you. And so friend, that's true for you, but it is true for everyone you meet. Everyone you, and get no offense, but if Jesus is willing to save people like you and me, If he's willing to live inside people like you and me, then he will save and he will dwell within all sorts of people, right? The reason that we can confidently proclaim Jesus to 
one is because no one is beyond his love. That's the mystery of the gospel. No one is beyond the saving work of Jesus Christ. No one is so bad that God would not dwell within them. And so we then who have found this salvation, we who have experienced this forgiveness, we now get the great joy of going out and telling other people about it. In fact, right, Paul says, I'm doing this for everybody. I'm proclaiming it to everyone that I meet. I am willingly suffering and prayerfully proclaiming to everyone the glorious mystery of God in Christ. And while you may not be Paul and I may not be Paul, we are called to that same work of prayerfully proclaiming the mystery of God in Christ and being willing to suffer for it if necessary. And truly prayer, right? That's the starting point. The starting point of the proclamation of the gospel is prayer. Many of us are are afraid to talk to other people about the gospel, right? You're afraid of maybe an awkward situation. It's actually what I love about that Penn Jillette quote because he just calls that out as just a completely inadequate excuse. And God says, well, let's start with prayer, right? So we, we, if you're afraid of sharing the gospel, if you're afraid of claiming, then begin with prayer. But even if you're not afraid, begin with prayer too, because at the end of the day, you and I can't save anyone, right? It's only the Spirit's movement in a person that will turn them to Jesus. So the first step to evangelism is prayer. Paul actually demonstrates it at the very beginning of chapter two. He says this, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face. The word struggle is the way that Paul talks about prayer all through the book of Colossians. At the very end of Colossians, he makes this super clear for us. In Colossians 4.12, he talks about this guy named Epaphras. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, that is a Colossian, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras is struggling in his prayers. Here in chapter two, Paul is struggling in his prayers on behalf of the Colossians. But not just them, right? He says, I struggle on behalf of anybody who I have never met. Think about that for a minute. Paul is struggling, is praying before proclaiming He's praying for people he hasn't even met yet. Not just praying, he's he's struggling, he's wrestling with the Lord on behalf of people he has not even met yet. Because our preaching is powerless if it is done in our own power. But when we pray, Christ who is in us fills us and our preaching with his power. That's what Paul says. That's verse 29 of chapter one. He says, for this, that is the gospel, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's work, his toil, his struggle is energized and empowered by Christ within him with all his energy that he powerfully works. I am proclaiming the mystery of God in Christ. And so do you have people in your life who don't know Jesus? Let me just ask you this. Are you praying for them? Do you pray that they would come to know him? 
or your prayer is just full of your own concerns and your own comforts. Let's go a step further. Are you joining your prayers with the proclamation of the gospel? Have you shared the love of Jesus with them? I don't mean, do they know that you're a Christian? And I don't mean, are you nice to them? I mean, have you told them that there is forgiveness and new life in Jesus? Maybe you're saying, I don't know anybody who doesn't follow Jesus. Paul says, that's okay. Pray for those you haven't even met yet. Pray that you would meet them. Pray that they would meet Jesus. Right? When we prayerfully proclaim the gospel, our preaching is empowered by Christ. But we don't just prayerfully proclaim the mystery of God in Christ, right? We're also willing to suffer on behalf of it. It's the way our passage begins. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. He doesn't just suffer, but he does it willingly. He even rejoices in his suffering. Paul's in prison when he's writing this. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He'll encounter even more suffering along the way until eventually he's gonna be killed for his faith. And through it all, he is rejoicing in his suffering. Why? Because it's for their sake that they might understand the gospel. He would suffer as long as the gospel would go forth. One of the early church leaders, this guy named Tertullian is quoted as saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's how we grow, right? One of the ways that we declare the gospel, the truthfulness of the gospel is in our willingness to suffer and die for the gospel. Imagine, imagine a person telling that the thing that they believe in gives them hope beyond this life, hope after death, and then them living in crippled fear because of death. It doesn't sound that hopeful after all, does it? Paul says, I willingly would suffer. Now, we don't have very many opportunities to suffer for our, on behalf of the gospel here, here in the States, right? Certainly not like places like North Korea or, or Libya or Afghanistan, but as little suffering as we face, it certainly seems to have an outsized impact on our evangelism, right? I know you've heard the excuses for not sharing your faith. Maybe you've used them yourself. You could, oh, I could lose my job. I could lose a friend. I could get laughed at. Maybe I'll even get killed. Paul says, I'm willingly suffering. I'm prayerfully proclaiming to everyone the mystery of God in Christ. I think the question is simply, are you willing to suffer? Am I willing to sacrifice? How much is that person's salvation worth to you? Are you willingly suffering and prayerfully proclaiming to everyone the mystery of God in Christ? But we shouldn't stop there because this beautiful example that Paul lays out for us is not one of simply sharing the gospel and hey, they accept Jesus and then I just walk away. Paul says he's not going to be satisfied until we are presented as mature in Christ. Right, that's verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Warn everyone. 
then teach them so that one day we can present them as mature. We start with with warning, right? We warn that while there is forgiveness to be found in Christ, there is also punishment for those who are outside of Christ. And so we warn of the coming judgment because it's real. But we warn with a solution. Hey, you're headed towards death and destruction, but in Jesus, there is life and flourishing. Right, but just as Paul warns everyone, so he says he teaches everyone. Right? Just as no one is beyond the hope of salvation, no one is beyond maturity in Christ. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you have gone through, Jesus is not only happy to save you and not only happy to dwell within you, but he is happy for you to be mature in him. That's his desire. And it's not just true for you, but for everyone you encounter. And if it's true, then we really should willingly suffer and prayerfully proclaim to everyone the mystery of God in Christ. Now, I don't do this every week, but I just want to present a very clear next step for you. If you don't know Jesus, maybe it's clear already, but here's my hope. My hope is that this morning you've come to understand that he loves you and he desires a relationship with you. But here's the thing, he doesn't go places he's not welcome. And so if you would like to know how to welcome Christ into your life, after the, please come find me as soon as the service is over. Let's talk about that. If you do know Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's what I want you to know. He's not finished with you. There are so many riches and treasures of glory that you will discover on your way to maturity in Christ. And I can think of no better way for you to grow in maturity in Christ than for you to join one of our bridge groups. Now, I know this sounds like an advertisement. Maybe it is. But let me tell you what what we need around us. We need other people who are gonna be just like Paul, who are gonna teach us with all wisdom until we are presented as mature in Christ. That's what we need. And so if you've ever been one of those people who thought, okay, I hear what's happening at church on Sunday, but I have no idea how to connect that to the rest of my week, bridge groups are for you. They're these small groups of people that gather in homes every Sunday afternoon, evening, and we just talk about, okay, how do I actually put this thing that I heard into action in my life? so that I would grow in maturity in Christ. They launch on September 12th. If you're struggling with this idea you've heard today, hey, proclaim the gospel to everyone. You think, I don't know how to do that. You know what you need? A group of people around you in your life who will help you and encourage you and challenge you. That's gonna radically alter the way that you live out your faith. It's gonna be a huge step forward in your journey towards maturity. So here's my challenge. Here's my next step for you. There is a piece of paper on that table that says, get to know us. And on that paper, you can sign up for a bridge group. You just put your name and your email address. You don't have an email, put your phone number down. You just put that down and we will get you in a bridge group that starts on September 12th. And if you're thinking, oh, I already told him I wanted to be in a bridge group, put it on the paper anyways. 
Put it on the paper anyways, because I truly believe that these groups are going to radically change the way we progress in maturity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, your, your glory is so great. Even as we've talked about, Lord, if the heavens could not hold you, how much less that you would dwell in us, and yet that's your promise. And so we're so thankful for your kindness to us to not only save us, to set us free, to forgive us, but also to dwell in us, to give us hope. Hope that we will one day be mature in you. So Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes on you and the hope that you give and boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel to everyone. Lord, help us to not be stingy with your grace, but to prayerfully proclaim to everyone. And Lord, would you bring people to salvation? And would you bring us to full maturity in Christ? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.